0: The first time he told me about her, it was a friend of mine, we were down in Atlantic City on a guy's weekend. Now this was years ago, I'm a pastor, I would never be caught dead in Atlantic City anymore. If you happen to see somebody that looks like me down there, it's likely not me. Now at the time when he told me about her, I didn't even know she existed, I mean I I thought that he was a pretty happily married guy. Now, nobody ever really knows what goes on behind people's closed doors, but from all indications, it seemed like they were a pretty together family and that they really loved each other. But we weren't down there long. I don't remember if it was in, in, um, if it was in Harris or if it was in Caesar's. I thought I knew him. But once we got down there, it was like he was a totally different person, almost as if this secret relationship had kind of changed who he was. At home, he seemed prudent, he he seemed wise and disciplined, uh, hardworking, but down there, man, it was like something happened to him, it was was as if he had lost his mind, he just, he was like a drunk sailor um, on leave. So he asked me, at one point, in the quiet, he said, have you ever done anything like this? You know, kind of had something, quote, tucked away on the side, and I told him the truth that I hadn't, and honestly, it never really even crossed my mind, but... You would think that my friend had become like uh, the, the, the Chamber of Commerce marking rep for adulterous ways. He, he just kept going on about, well, yes, his wife didn't know she existed. The truth was that this side relationship had kept things fresh in his marriage. That ever since he started doing this, he had fought less with his wife. He'd enjoyed his life more. I remember asking him at one point, don't you feel guilty at all? I mean, you ever wonder about what's going to happen if she finds out what you're doing? And he said, yeah, he worried about it, but he was careful, and that if his wife find out, she would be hurt, but he was going to keep it all hidden. There was nothing to worry about, and at this point, to let her know to come clean would only make things worse. Plus, he said, John, the truth is I'm having more fun and doing exactly what, what I wanted all my life. I've worked hard to get where I am. I've provided for the wife and the kids. This is no big deal. It's just something on the side. Now, I don't know if you have a friend like that. You probably do and don't realize it. And heck, this might even be you, because here's the deal. My friend and I weren't talking about a woman. We were talking about a secret stash of cash that he had. One that he had set up and funded and kept hidden from his wife and his kids. And and he had just kind of, over time, put some money in there, put some money in there. And and then it was there for whenever he needed it or for whatever purposes he solely deemed necessary. Now, my friend, and this actually isn't a a complete true story of one person. It's actually an amalgamation of stories that I've heard from a lot of folks that I've counseled with. My friend, uh, and, and maybe yours maybe you, was deeply in the midst of a financial, uh, financial infidelity. Now financial infidelity is what happens when a person drives their family into debt with overspending. It's, financial infidelity is what happens when there's a lack of financial planning that leaves couples desperate. It, it, it's when two people who maintain separate accounts because they don't trust each other enough to pool their resources Financial infidelity is when one, one partner has the desire to control another person's life by limiting his or her access to money. It's what happens. Financial infidelity is what happens every time a person lies or cheats or deceives his partner about money. It's, it's a common betrayal of the trust two people put in each other when they committed to the relationship. And it always results in, in, in overspending or or separation, or lack of planning, or control and secrets. These forms of betrayal, here's the truth, and I can show this to you, these forms of betrayal can be just as damaging to that trust as uh, sexual infidelity. Now, financial infidelity is everywhere. As you know now, I mean, if you're alive, you know that about half of all marriages in the United States end in divorce. Top cause of divorce? Money. 75% of couples in the United States cite the primary cause of their marital fights, money. Financial infidelity seldom happens, or seldom happens abruptly. It sneaks into a relationship without warning over time. It it creeps in through little lies, seemingly harmless secrets that couples have about money. It starts when a a guy goes, you know what, I'm really tired of her nagging me about what I spend my money on, and so here's what I'm going to do. One of those credit card solicitation comes in the mail one day, and he tucks it into his back pocket and says, I think I'm going to get myself one of these, and she won't need to know. I'll just charge $100 a month. No one will miss it. But the hundred turns into five hundred, and the five hundred into five thousand, and the spiral just keeps dwindling down. I met with a wonderful Christian man one time that came clean because he was investing money, and he, he he kept investing in things that were losing money, and he was paying it off with zero interest credit card loans. And his wife didn't know he had thirty thousand dollars in credit card debt. See, it starts small. It starts when a woman tells her husband that you know she only spent fifty dollars at the mall instead of the hundred and seventy-five that she really dropped because she doesn't want to make it mad. It starts when he hides the real depth of the debt that he brought into the relationship, or, or when she refuses to, to even be involved in, in the financial planning. You see, just like sexual infidelity, financial infidelity starts with an innocent, uh, just like sexual infidelity starts with a business lunch or a little flirtation, financial infidelity begins with the first secret, the first half-truth. The first, no one will know it's gone. The first, I worked hard for this money. The first, hidden purchase. The first, betrayal leads to the next and the next. And before long, the relationship is dying. It's serious stuff. It's in 75% of our homes. Bethany and Scott Palmer, in their book, first comes love, then comes money. I love that. And then comes an elephant in a baby carriage they do a brilliant job of laying out how elephants related to finances wind up in our living room. And oftentimes, as they say, through these patterns of financial infidelity. The truth is, once we get past dealing, as we have over the last few weeks, with the elephants that exist in our family room because of marriages and and parenting and siblings and our parents, once we get past the relational stuff, the elephant waiting for us in many of our homes is the money mammal, the elephant of our finances. You might be sitting there going, we have no pro- pro- financial problems. This morning we, we, we never fight about money. If you're saying that, look around the row you're in because that statistically everybody else is. Now I love about the Palmer's work is that they get it, that in our relationship, the handling of money, the handling of money, this is what the church teaches all the time, how to handle money, come up with a budget or investment ideas, that's not the issue. Yes, we can and should teach those things. In fact, we have. We, we've used the Dave Ramsey material, Financial Peace University. We're probably going to do it again. We've ha- we have and have had wonderful financial advisors here at Menem Hills that are just ready to help you free of cost. We have a debt counselor that could help you. We could help you come up with a financial plan. But that is not what this talk is about today. Here's the deal, and they point this out brilliantly. Quote, even couples with perfect budgets and paid off houses and zero debt still end up arguing about money, angry about money, resentful about money. Even couples with spotless credit can be mired in the kind of financial infidelity that sullies relationships. Because the budget isn't the problem. The lack of financial communication and trust and understanding is the problem. They report in their study that the same couples that they tried to help show how to budget and how to live within their means, oftentimes, six months later, come back to discuss how to separate their assets in preparation for divorce. And these financial counselors would ask them, what happened? And one of them would say, well, she's just not committed to this budget. But what these men and women were really saying is, she's just not committed to this relationship. It's certainly true that it feels good to pay off your mortgage. It's great to create a budget and live within your means. That's biblical and good. But if living by the budget causes you to berate or resent your partner, I want to repeat this because this is what happens in our homes all the time. If living by the budget causes you to berate or resent your partner, what's the point? You might not have any debt. But if you avoided debt by never taking a family vacation or creating any family memories, who cares? Who cares? You could pay cash for all of your cars, but if you haven't made love to your husband or wife in two years, so what? They say they'd rather see couples with $15,000 in credit card debt who love each other and are working together to get to a better place than a husband or wife who have no credit card debt but a treasure trove of resentment and bitterness and elephants. And so what we find at work here, this is just the coolest thing because we're on this kind of journey together and it just keeps going back to the same couple places. What we find at work behind the money problem are the same principles we've been looking at that are at foot in in our relationships with one another. The first thing is if you're in a relationship where there's stress around the finances and it's gotten to the point where there's a lot of arguments about it, where it's just, it's almost like you don't want to touch it. The first thing you have to ask yourself is why am I, what is it that is causing this fight? Remember, what is it that causes fights and quarrels amongst you? Is it not something that that this war that rages within you? You're not getting what you want. And the second is to remember that in, in this discussion, in this partnership, in this financial fidelity, in this relationship you're called to, where mine is yours and yours is mine, when you're sharing your stuff like that, you need to remember the person that you chose to share your stuff with is a... Human being. And see, there's a strange thing about human beings. They disagree on what you should spend money on. Because you married, you're in a relationship with someone who has their own thoughts, plans, dreams, hopes, brokenness, and sin patterns with money. Nothing seems to engender more deceit or indifference and secrecy quite as quickly as money. Because money touches every single part of our life. Think about it. It's not about money. It's not about the budget. This is about money. Money touches where you're going to live, what we do, what we wear, what we eat, where we eat, what we drive, who our friends are, and on and on and on. Our attitudes about money impact every decision we make. My kids, when I go shopping, and now I need to be truthful about this because Joan's not here today. She might watch this online. I've probably shopped three times in the history of our relationship. But in those three times, my kids will come out of the shower and they will say, Dad, shop this week. And I'll say, How did you know? And they'll go, Because you bought that cheap crud shampoo. Now, gentlemen, shampoo is shampoo, am I right? I mean, it's like, why would you, if you could buy it for $1.50, why would you spend like $8 on shampoo? Now, the boys walk out, they don't say a word, right? The girls walk out. Now, to be fair, their hair is all tangled up and frizzy. But nevertheless, I I can't get past it. But it says something about what we value. See, when couples talk about money issues, they're really talking about life, period. When you're fighting about money, you're not fighting about money. You're fighting about life, which is why people get defensive about spending. Don't talk about my wife, my religion, my kids, or the way I spend my money. We don't want anybody sticking their nose in there. We resist being completely honest about our financial lives. And this is why, this is why, especially if you're new to the church, this is profoundly important to understand. When Jesus was on earth, he spoke a lot about money. And I don't think you understand how much he spoke about money. We don't speak a lot about money here because I know the church gets a bad rep about talking about money. Jesus didn't seem concerned about getting a bad rep about money. Here's why. 16. Jesus tells parables, stories, so that we, you know, try, try to pierce the heart, get it in a way people would understand the story. So many of you know he taught in parables, he taught in stories so that people would understand, and he told about, depending on how you count them, 38 of them. Of the 38 stories he told that would pierce your heart, 16 of them were about money, almost half of them. The Bible offers, prayer is very important. I just told you, we have to get prayer teams together. We have to have our church fueled by the power of prayer. It's about 500 verses on prayer. Faith, the methodology by which we are saved, by faith, through grace. There's less than 500 verses on faith. There are more than 2,000 verses on money and possessions. This is why we argue about it. Jesus knew he spoke more about money than he did heaven and hell combined because it's not about money it's about something much deeper that rages within each of us money has the power to separate us from God we all know that because we can trust in it more than we trust in him the love of it is the root of all evil you can't serve money and God right and so it's very dangerous for us because we oftentimes want to serve our money, want to trust in our money and not trust in God. But here's the other thing that money has tremendous power to do. It has the tre- a tremendous power to separate us from God and it has a tremendous power to separate us from one another. You ever been in a, in a uh, family that had an estate try to get settled? See? I mean, you, just, you just hear the moans. I'm dealing right now with some interpersonal family stuff about estates. And, and all, all it's like walking on, you know, everybody's tiptoeing around the whole thing. And it has nothing to do with the money. Nobody wants any money. It has to do with who's in charge of it, who makes the decisions, who makes the calls. It's not about the money. It's about something deeper and more profound. And, and if this isn't settled in this family I'm working with right now, if this isn't settled, we are going to spin out elephants that are going to last generations in that family. It will break apart relationships. It's really powerful. That's why Jesus talks about it so much. Now, here's what Palmer's research shows, and I love it because it falls right in line with what we've been, been saying. And their work, by the way, is secular. This is not a Christian book. But the truth is deeply rooted in what the Bible says about us and money. Quote, in our work with couples struggling with financial infidelity, because this is financial infidelity springs out of these misunderstandings about money we often find that the core of the problem is a fundamental lack of understanding regarding their ideas about money. All they know is that money creates problems for them. What they don't know is why. And as we've tried to figure out how to help these couples to learn to communicate about their finances, we've come to see that everyone has a particular money personality that shapes how they think. Listen, You and your wife, you and your husband, you and your parents, you and your kids, you each have different financial personalities, money personalities that shape how you think about, feel about, talk about money. And it's likely different than the person you decided to move in with slash marry. When those thoughts and feelings and conversations clash with the thoughts and feelings and conversations and values of another person, it can feel like the whole relationship is just falling apart. But if we could get each other to understand and respect your partner's view of money, because we all don't view it the same way, we all don't see it the same way. If we could get that, if we could understand who we are, how we see it, who he, she is, and how she sees it, then we can begin to move the elephant out of the room. Now remember, as we head into this, all the stuff we've been looking at in terms of dealing with spouses and parents and siblings and kids, all of the stuff that causes fights and quarrels amongst us, All the human being stuff, remember, I've told you this a couple times. You need to become a student of the person that you're in conflict with, a student of your spouse or your student, or a student of your kid. You need to understand their temperaments, their plans, their hopes, their dreams, their wounds, their pains, their dysfunctions. And all of that is true with money. When couples take the time to identify and talk about and understand their money personalities, When you take the time to understand and talk about your individual money personalities, it blows the door off of financial relationship problems. It's like earning a PhD in your partner. No relationship can grow or deepen without both of you studying each other and continually rediscovering each other. Oh, I never thought about that's the way you thought about this. I only think about it this way, but you see it an entirely different way. Understanding your partner's money personality is a crucial part of the process. When you figure out why your partner, why your husband, why your wife thinks about money the way he does, when you realize that, that your spouse's perspective, gentlemen especially, because sometimes I think that this is maybe a male thing, but I, certainly it's, it's shared. When you realize your partner's perspective on money has as much value as yours, you're on your way to a truly satisfying financial future. You're going to get each other in a whole new way. And at the end of the day, understanding the way your partner thinks, your spouse, your husband, your wife, understanding their money personalities will help you get empathy for them. Put yourself in their shoes, feel as they feel, and then you can deal with the elephant. So here's the deal. It's fascinating. According to their research. According to the research, and backed up by the Bible, and I'm going to show you this, There are essentially five money personalities that each of us has. Now, it's not perfect. You might be high in one, and you might have one. Most of us have a secondary money personality. Um, But then we tend to marry people with differing money personalities. And so I I, want to go through what the Scripture says about this and how we can deal with this, okay? So so here's money personality number one, okay? Money personality number one is the saver. These, the savers... They're the penny pitchers of the world. They're the cheapskates. They hate parting with money, and they believe that everything is overpriced. If a saver finds a buck in her coat pocket, you know what she does with it? She leaves it there. It's easy to recognize a saver, right? A saver is the, is the partner in the law firm driving the 15-year-old car. She's the co-worker that packs a lunch every day, and when it's her turn to bring something for coffee hour, shows up with day-old donuts. See, when you're a saver, though, you don't even recognize it. Because for a saver, saving money is reasonable. It's the rational way to live. It doesn't seem like a personality trait. It seems like common sense. Everybody should be like this. A saver literally gets a rush from getting a deal. See, I got a little saver in me, a little saying around the Eisman house. I tell the kids all the time, quote, retail is for suckers. I like being a saver. You know what I like? I like getting a good deal better than I like the deal. Right? Like I come home, I feel better about what I save than the fact that I now have the product. It's good to be a saver. The Bible speaks highly of being a saver. We should all have some saver in us. Steve Fisher, his mom, our youth pastor, his mom used to drill the Proverbs into him, and and there's a lot of Proverbs on saving. Let me give you a couple. Uh, Proverbs 13, 16. A wise man thinks ahead. A fool doesn't and even brags about it. You ever meet a guy that goes, Bleh. I'm not saving up for any of that. How about this? Proverbs 21. The wise store up choice food in olive oil, but fools gulp theirs down. And the one that Steve, Steve taught me years ago, and I, didn't, I didn't know it until he turned me on to it. You know the scripture actually at one point says, human beings look to the ant for wisdom. Look to the ant. Proverbs chapter 6. Go to the ant, you sluggard, and consider its ways, and be wise. It is no commander, no overseer, or a ruler, yet somehow it knows to store its provisions in the summer and gather its food at harvest. It's good to be a saver. You sh- if you, if you, I know you savers, right? Like, you, you, you savers, like you, you, your file cabinets, right? You have every credit card bill you've ever paid, don't you? You have every paycheck you've ever gotten? I know the savers out there. You balance your checkbook every month, and you get down to like 38 cents away, and you can't sleep at night. Because you know that's indicative of a a bigger problem, and so you'll work it through. I mean, you savers, is is anybody married to a saver? Anybody? I had one guy yell out in the first service, I wish. (laughs) This is the best line of the sermon. It's good to be married to a saver, except for one problem. There's only one problem with savers. You know what they are? Massive buzzkills. Right? I mean, nobody can suck joy out of a good time more than a saver. We have a relative that comes to our house and is very proud about how, how little they have to spend on everything. Like, constantly, you know, comes over, oh, do you have the paper in there, cutting coupons, and everything, we talk, every. no matter what comes up, we have to hear about the deal they got and I remember one time they went into the bathroom and they came out of the bathroom and I got like a 10-minute lecture on uh, how much money I waste on the toilet paper we use. (laughs) It's a true story. Savers will kill you sometimes if it's taken too far. If this is you, if you're so tight with a dollar that you have to like blow the dust out of your wallet when it has to get opened, you you need to hear something. You have become likely for your wife or your husband or your kids or your family a huge joy killer. And you may wind up, here's the danger with getting crazy saving. You can wind up obsessed with money. It's all I think about. It a great, I was thinking about this this morning, what, what savers tend to do, and it, it, it struck me that it looks, it looks a lot like the Geico commercial that's out with the alligator right now. Check this, this out. Thank you for dining with us. Uh, Hope um, to see you again uh, soon. Thank whoa, you whoa, so whoa. much. I got this. Just gotta reach the check. <laughs> Oh, most there. I can't reach it. If you have alligator arms, you avoid picking up the check. What? That's what you do. I got this. Thanks, Dennis. If you want to save 15% or more on car insurance, you switch to Geico. Ow. It's what you do. Ow, ow, ow. Oh, that is good crispy duck. Savers love to spend money. They just don't like to spend their own money. Big on spending other people's money. Here's the deal, Savers, great characteristic. Bible's big on it, but here's what you have to, because the scriptures teach us to lead, lead, lead a life of balance. You, you have been given blessings to A, be a blessing, and B to enjoy. You can see this over and over in the scriptures, but I'll give you one verse just in Ecclesiastes. There are a ton of them in there. Check this out. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with, with which one toils under the sun for the few days of his life that God has given him. This is his lot. This is big biblical language for you. you. can't take this stuff with you. God did not create you to grind out life with no enjoyment to get by on bread and water. Just keep packing it away. Your wife is probably right, at least some, or your husband, at some level. Take a vacation. Go to dinner. Yes, do it responsibly. But here's what I need you to do. You need to spend responsibly, but you need to save responsibly. Right? You need to save responsibly. There is a time and a a day for spending. Don't save irresponsibly at the sacrifice of of your family and of of memories. Number two. If number one is a saver, guess what the other kind of style that that we have, some of us have when it comes to money? Spender. Spender. Spenders love to spend. Buy, buy, buy. I remember the Flintstones. They had an episode where every time Fred and Barney and Wilma and whatever her name was, wanted something, they would just yell, charge it, and the bugles would go off and they'd run down to the store, right? Money, if you're a spender, money never sticks around too long. If a spender finds a buck in his coat pocket, he goes to Starbucks to see what's on sale. Spenders, we love spenders. Spenders are the life of the party, man. They're the ones you love to go out with. They always look good, dress well. They are great gifted givers. You want an uncle who's a spender, They're spontaneous, they're generous, they're a blast to be around. It doesn't matter where they spend, it could be Nordstrom's, it could be the dollar store. No money, no problem, I'll go to the garage sales. Spenders just love to spend because they get a high from spending. Does anybody else get a high from spending? They live in the moment. They love to buy, even for others, and at the end of the day, it just does something to their soul. Everyone loves a spender except for one person. Do you know who that is? The person married to him. Because here's the deal with spenders. They can be impractical. They're often non-communicative, i.e., I I can't talk about what I spent money on because you're going to get mad at me. And they become hiders. They hide shoes. Sometimes guys, right, guys can become spenders. They're trying to hide a boat. You've seen this? Oh, honey, I just rented it for the day. Spenders, you ever have a spending hangover? You know when I get spending hangovers when I go to Costco? I was at Costco yesterday, and I'm pushing the cart through. Next thing I knew, I swear, I had two carts. And Joan looks at me, and she's like, what are you doing? And and I'm going, but Joan, these mixing bowls are a fantastic deal. And she's going, I have mixing bowls, but not like this. And look how they're half price. A spender, man, Costco is like equal parts paradise and hell on a Saturday afternoon. There's endless possibilities in there for joy and pain. But again, some biblical wisdom for you as spenders. Because you should enjoy what you have. You should should enjoy your life and and, and some of of your stuff. But here's what Proverbs says. Whoever loves pleasure, I love this, whoever loves pleasure, you know what you're going to be? Poor. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. How about, how about Jesus in Luke chapter 12? He said to them, now remember, you've got to enter the story here. Jesus is saying, listen, guys, be careful. Be careful to be on your guard against all covetedness, this desire to have, have, have. Because your life, because this is our brokenness, we tend to think this all the time, because your life does not consist in all of your Crud. It doesn't. You think it does, but it doesn't. It's not wrong to be a spender. They enjoy life. They give freely. Sometimes spenders are great givers. Love the spenders here at Men Mills Community Church. But you need to be balanced if your spouse is the spender, it doesn't mean she's wrong or he's wrong. It just means it's their default personality when it comes to money, and we need to understand each other. I met with a f- new friend this week, and he works a lot, like a lot of hours. And I saying, man, how do you do that? What drives you?" motivation? He said, I grew up dirt poor, and I swore I was never going to be poor. Do you know how deep that is in him? You don't just invalidate that. Okay, number three. So, so far you got a saver, you got your spender. Here's number three. Number three is your risk taker. The entrepreneurs, the inventors, the people on the cover of time, they're all risk takers. They aren't afraid of losing everything if it gets them closer to having everything. These guys are the world changers, the Bill Gates, the Steve Jobs, the Donald Trumps. Risk takers, the thrill doesn't just come from the result, it comes from the risk. Have you thought to yourself, you could get the same effect Jumping out of an airplane as you can standing in front of a fan, it's just all about the risk. (laughs) Right? And for risk takers, this fuels them Oh, You know, they love to hear about a stock tip. Right? They're watching Jim Cramer and Money Matters all the time. Now, make make no mistake about it. Risk takers make things happen. They change the world. That's not me. I wish I was a bit more of a risk taker. Risk-takers are decisive and intuitive, natural leaders, great visionaries. They're excited just thinking about new possibilities. I tend to think this is the minority of us because the Scripture seems to indicate that we should probably trust God more and risk more. Most of us are so hunkered down and making sure we can control everything and not have to trust anyone or anybody. The Scriptures seem to indicate, in fact, we also talked about the regrets that 90-year-olds have. If they could go back and tell themselves something when they were younger, one of the three things was they would take more risks. But the Bible also warns about this. Proverbs again. He who is impulsive exalts folly. Be very careful then, Paul says, as you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity. The days are evil. Don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. With your money, with your life with your relationships. Risk-takers, I don't know if any of you are in a relationship, I won't ask you to raise your hand, I don't know if any of you are in a a relationship with a risk-taker. Being in a relationship with a risk-taker, even if you're another risk-taker, can be tough because the quick decision, the leveraging, the financial assets, it can end with two people who don't even like each other anymore. You idiot! Look what my investment did, look what yours did. When a decision pays off, everybody's happy. Bad deal, Resentment, and it infects the relationship to the point that there could be almost no communication risk takers have have issues too They can be impatient. They're often insensitive because most people don't think like they think Have you ever pounded the table in front of your spouse and said you don't understand how great this opportunity is? This is it. I know it's a hog farm, but this is the one If the risk taker's partner gets nervous about the risk taker's behavior, the risk taker often ignores those feelings and does what they want to do anyway. Risk takers often, if you're a risk taker, you hate feeling hemmed in by having to report back to your husband or your wife about what you're doing with the money. You charge ahead, you want to deal with the relational fallout later. To the risk takers in the audience today, good for you, Jack. You have the power to change the world, but you need to understand this. Everyone, and likely your spouse, does not think the way you do. That is not wired into their natural DNA. And as a result, it does not mean that you are right or they are wrong, but you need to appreciate the motivation and the human nature of the other, that they're seeing things from a different perspective. And by the way, if you're a risk taker, they might save you from a huge mistake. Fourth one, this one should have a picture of me next to it. This is me. I am the security seeker with money. If you know a planner, you know a security seeker. They like knowing their financial future is locked in, baby. They can tell you how much is in their retirement account. I could tell you right now. I'm not kidding. I get nervous. I've told you this before. You know I get nervous. You know what makes me feel better? A little quick at the look at the 401k because I can trust that. See? I look to my money for security. This is deep in me. It's a brokenness. It's a flaw. I'm not proud of it. See, security seekers are just like this. They don't care if they have a lavish retirement. They just want to know that they're not going to live on the street. They don't care if they have the nicest home. They just want the one they can pay for. They're the people who put a little money into the stock market. I have a buddy that's a financial advisor. They put a little money into the stock market, and they call their broker every morning, every time the market moves a couple points. If simply reading the term interest-only loan makes you flinch, you're probably a security seeker. Now, unlike risk-takers, security seekers never get taken advantage of. No internet scams work on them. You know why? Because they investigate, investigate, investigate. Do you know how long it takes me to buy a pair of sneakers? <laughs> Caleb, the other night, he was trying to run. He doesn't have running sneakers. I said, I'll get you a pair of sneakers. He said, okay. And he kept asking me for days, did you buy them yet? Still looking into it, okay? because I'm a, I want the best deal on the sneaker. I refer, no, no, hold on. First I want the best sneaker. Then I default to my secondary money personality, which is Saver. Then once I find it, I can't buy it for retail. I gotta find it for less. It takes me forever. My wife goes to the store and comes home with stuff and I'll sit on the internet for two months. We're prepared for any circumstance, right? We never do anything stupid with anybody, money. There's a lot of good things about being a security seeker. But here's the problem with being a security seeker. It is idolatry. It sounds good. It's idolatry. This is, this, you want to hear a parable, a story about money that Jesus told? One of the half of them. Luke chapter 12. And he told him a parable saying, the land of a rich man, he was already rich. By the way, relative to the history of the world, what are you? Rich. The land of a rich man was very productive, and he began reasoning to himself, saying, well, what should I do? I don't have any place to store my crops. So he said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down my barns, and I'm going to build larger ones, and then I'll store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, I love that, to his soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. Be merry because you've trusted in your stuff. And God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you and now who will own what you've prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. If you're a security seeker, you know what you should read every morning? Every morning you should get up as part of your little devotions, Matthew chapter six. Jesus says, Jesus by the way, an itinerant first century Jewish rabbi who never owned a home and often said he had nowhere to lay his head. That's the one you security seekers like me follow? That's the one? This is what he said, he goes, therefore I tell you don't, see we worry, security seekers worry, don't worry about your life, about what you're gonna eat or your drink or about your body or what you're gonna wear. Isn't life more than the food and the body more than the clothes? Look at the birds of the air. See, I do this. I go out on my deck sometimes because I I know I'm a security seeker, and I try to look at the birds, and I try to go, see, God takes care of them. That's what Jesus says. He goes, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. You know what I do? I sit on the deck, and I look at the deer, and I often think to myself, the heck does that deer do in the winter when the snow is like four feet deep? See, that's what security seekers do. Like, i got to figure out how the deer eats. And Jesus goes, I got it. I got you. Trust. Don't try to get your security out of your stuff. It's never going to give you what you're looking for. If you're married to a security seeker, you should probably be thankful. If you are a security seeker, let go and trust a little bit. Because if you don't, it's going to squelch what God wants to do in your life and in your home. And the last one is this. I met somebody this morning that told me that they are, they are a combination of two. They said that they are a risk taker. And then they, this is a bad combination. And uh, then they said they are a flyer. The flyers called this because when it comes to money, they literally fly by the seat of their pants. Plan, what plan? Budget, what's that? Flyers don't think about money at all. You ever meet somebody like this? They're not anxious about it. They're not consumed by it. They have absolutely no emotional response to money. I hate these people. Right? I mean, flyers, they live paycheck to paycheck, but they're not sweating it out. They don't even know how much gets taken out of their paycheck. They don't get excited about saving. They don't get excited about spending. They simply live in the moment. Flyers are happy and content in their lives and with their lots. Now, they have their issues, and being married to one, if you're a saver or a security seeker, could drive you to drink. It could be easier for a saver, for example, to deal with a spender, because at least he knows what to expect. Flyers, they're reactionary. They're undisciplined. They're unfocused. And that lack of planning and discipline over time left unchecked can lead to big problems. See, flyers, I hate to break it to you. If you're a flyer and you're a true flyer, you're going to be working until you're like 85 And you're not going to know why. But here's the good news. You won't care. (laughs) I mean, being a flyer is fun. It's fun. But you need to remember something. You know whose resources you're managing when you're a flyer? Not yours. This is what Jesus said about flyers. Luke chapter 16. Because Jesus says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who is going to trust you with true riches, which is what the Lord has to give you? And if you haven't been trustworthy with someone else's property, which is what you have, who will give you property of your own? I need you to understand this. Here's what the scripture teaches. No matter what those of your, of you, which of those five personalities you are. The way you handle your money, the way you handle responsibility and blessing in this life is a test for what is coming in the next life. The amount of responsibility and resources for which you will be given oversight in, uh, over in eternity. The scripture teaches this over and over. No matter what your money personality is, the Bible tells us that this is not your money. You, you are not saving your money. You are not spending your money. You are not taking risks with your money. You are not seeking security with your money. And you are not are ignoring things with your money. It is God's money. It's his resources. It's his stuff. And we are responsible for its oversight, to be stewards of another's, over, uh, of another's stuff. So no matter what, which one of those five things resonates with you, the first deal, somebody said to me this morning, well, what's the right one? Well, I said the right one is to balance these things out with an understanding that none of the stuff is yours. And if you understand that none of the stuff is yours, husbands and wives, as you discuss this stuff, could, wouldn't it take the teeth out of the fight when you sit down and instead of fighting about money, you stop and go, you know, you realize that this isn't mine or, or yours. What would it look like for us to steward this and be responsible for it together uh, for God? Here's how the writer of Proverbs wrote it. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crop. How do you honor God? He takes priority in the financial stuff. This is the key to how we manage our finances, how we take the teeth out of financial arguments, understanding it's not my stuff. I love the first fruits thing. If you're new to church, you might not know what that means, but here's what it essentially meant, that when the crop came in, When it was your your paycheck that was coming in, was your crops were coming in, you were to give the God the first 10% of it. Because what it was teaching you was to trust God with everything that you had, the best that you had, and trust that He would give you more. Okay, let me me fast forward that this was that what what that would mean. A lot lot of the the Bible talks about tithing, giving back to the God, to his church, 10% of your income. This is what that would mean if we were to practice it in a sense today right? If we lived, um, many of us live, work for corporations, but what if we, what if we um, worked for our own company, or what if we had our own company? The the first 10% of the, say you think I'm gonna make $100,000 a year, first 10,000 goes to God, and I'm gonna hope that he gives me more later. Teaches dependence on God. So that's the first thing you need to embrace in your relationship as you discuss these things. But here's the deal, second, and back to the elephant, for whatever reason, either it's in your DNA, maybe it's a product of your life experience. I have a friend who, who's very disciplined. He's so disciplined in his money. Oh, my gosh, he talks about his budget all the time. And his wife, but his wife grew up very poor, very, in a very blue collar, and he never had much. So his wife just constantly wants to spend a bigger, car, a ni- a, a bigger house, a nicer car, and it's driving him crazy. You know, he's got his issue, and she's got her issue. My, my stepdad... Um, he, when, he lived, when he was alive, I went to his house with my mom, and I went to his freezer one day, and I opened his freezer, and he had milk cartons, the old milk cartons, filled with water. And I said, Dan, what do you have the milk cartons frozen with water in the freezer for? He said, well, it's for ice in case we have a party. And I said, what? He said, yeah, you get an ice pick, and you chip the carton off it, and then you can break the ice into pieces and use it to, to give people for drinks. I said, you realize ice is like a buck, right? but he grew up in a depression. It was very real to him. He felt it. Our money personalities shape our assumptions and our expectations. Savers expect other people to want to save. Spenders assume everybody gets the same thrill from spending. When those type of expectations aren't met, our money personalities drive us to take extreme action to reduce our anxieties. So when we don't meet each other's expectations, it causes elephants. 75% of the fights because of this stuff, a lack of understanding of your money personality. So as you guys look at the conflicts that happen in your relationships, be aware of the assumptions that you're tending to make. Be honest about your expectations and how those impact your relationship. Ben, come on up. I just want to encourage you guys to reflect on these personalities. Which one's dominant in you? What's its benefit? What's its shortcoming? All of them have benefits. All of them have shortcomings. Understand and appreciate your spouse the way they see money. We can can be less selfish. We can be more considerate. We need to yield. We need to submit in these financial matters to two people. First to God and the priority of his call on our stuff. And the second is, the second is, when two became one, it wasn't just their flesh It was their stuff. And that means we need to consider one another and where we're coming from, what we're feeling. The other's thought process, the other's money personality is valid. You can begin here. You can begin again here. You can begin again here. And you can get the elephants out of your family room. Let's close this all.